Turn my microphone on. There we go. Sorry for you, those who are watching online. That was my fault there. Um, this morning, we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians, and there's been this theme that we've been continuing to uh, bump up against, and it's the, uh, the, the futile nature of applying the wisdom of the world within the life of the church and how that, has con- that connects to so many different aspects of what it means to be the church. So we've talked about our calling as believers in Christ. That, that is, God calls believers to Christ, not based on their position or status in life, but based on the fact that, that he, he, he calls people who are essentially social nothings um, and that they need to apply that same kind of ethic to their life as they go about living for Christ. We, we talked about a few weeks ago in verses chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, um, just that, the, that this all begins with the fact that, that we are resting in, not in the wisdom of the world, but in the foolishness of the cross. And that foolishness of the cross runs all the way through to this, this text that we're going to be covering this morning, which kind of concludes Paul's introductory thoughts. And one of the things that I find very comforting as I read and study throughout the week and throughout the year is to just go back and revisit um, biographies from pastors and leaders and preachers from a uh, a bygone era, the past era. And one of the most comforting biographies that I find myself returning to often, uh, especially over the last 10 years, is that of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was born in the mid-18th century, 1750s or something of that nature, and died in the mid-1900s. But at 23 years old, Charles Simeon was appointed to be rector, and that's Anglican terms for basically pastor, of the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. And that was a pretty, pretty exciting opportunity, a pretty exciting moment that his predecessor had passed away, and he was appointed to this role to be pastor and preacher of this, this particular church there in Cambridge. But his reception was mixed. He was quite popular on the university campus, a lecturer, a theological uh, 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 teacher, um, but the parish itself was not all that fond of the good Reverend Charles Simeon. And um, why? Because he was so unapologetic about gospel centrality, both in his preaching and in the life of the church, that he was less concerned with the forms that had oftentimes taken rule over the Anglican church, the Church of England, and he was more focused on bringing the gospel to bear on people's hearts week in and week out. And so this was not a very popular um, a popular notion in the church there, and so the, the folks there responded in all kinds of ways. Like back in the day, if you go to the old churches, they had the family pews, and you locked those pews. They would lock the pews and not show up for church so that no one could sit in the church and listen to him preach. Um, that, I kid you not, that's real. Um, he actually, at some point, was they locked him out of the church building altogether, and then they would then open it up to listen to another pastor on the afternoon of someone they would rather listen to than Charles Simeon. Now, it's interesting, though, in spite of all of this, continued, Simeon continued to be faithful, continued to be relentless in preaching the cross of Christ at the center of all faith and witness. And in all that persecution he faced all those early years of his ministry, and it, and it lasted for, for many years, a decade, I think, or more, he preached um, to those people and whoever would come, and he ended up dying in Cambridge in that um, appointment as pastor. 49 years he served as pastor of that church in spite of all of the resistance he got there. 
And when he was asked near the end of his life how he had endured such persecution and such resistance to his leadership, um, his answer was remarkably consistent with his ultimate aim throughout all of his ministry. Here's what he says. He says, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my, if my head and my shoulders are safely through, I can bear a prickling on my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Jesus, has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers in his victory. What a wonderful perspective to have on all of that. Well, this morning, as we get into Paul's final introductory words, he's going to apply um, this idea of, of embracing the foolishness of the cross to the life of the preacher and his preaching. And this is relevant for us here today because we will inevitably at some point have to call preachers and preaching. You may be at another church and be a part of that process. You may one day plant a church out of this church and we have to help us find a faithful preacher and elders for that task. There will be a day, though I have no desire of leaving my post anytime soon, there will be a day when I will no longer be the pastor here. It's the Lord Terry's. And so this is incredibly relevant for us this morning. And so here's what I want to try to get at and tease out this text this morning that I feel is the center of what Paul wants us to hear. The church needs preachers who lead with the gospel always in view, who embrace their own weakness in order to lead weary sinners to the power of God. Let me say that again. Churches need preachers who lead with the gospel always in view, who embrace their own weakness in order to help weary sinners rest in the power of God. So here's a little bit of the context of where we get out. Paul's returning here um, to something he left off in in verse 17 of chapter 1. Here's what he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of cross be emptied of its power. So he's leaving off this whole conversation about all these divisions in the church and where I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, and so on and so forth. And he comes back now to that same idea and how bad that was and how critically chronic of issue that was in the church. And he wants to run him back to himself. He's going to use himself as an example of what it means to be a man who gives himself to the foolishness of the cross. And so this morning, what I do, again, I've said it already, but I want to make sure that, this, that there's a little warning for us here. This, a lot of times, this passage would be relegated to the halls of seminaries, training pastors, and this is for them. But this is for all of us. Because all of us need to know these things. All of us are tempted to compare what happens to leaders in this church or other churches we've been to, compare them against all the names who run conferences and so on and so forth. Not that those are bad things, but it's important that we recognize the kind of men that God wants to use. And, and this is a hard text for me to preach because obviously I'm speaking to, in, in some sense to my own office, the office that you've called me to, to serve in. But I stand with the elders in this too, not just myself. And so it's humbling to stand in light of this and let this content of this text wash over me anew and afresh. I need to be reminded of these things because I can be tempted to run down roads and pathways that, then, that are not necessarily Christ-oriented, but they're, they're worldly-oriented in order to build this church on something else rather than Christ. So there's three things I want to see here this morning in this text that we need to look at as we begin to think about what it means to find faithful preachers, faithful pastors, 
three things we need to look at. We need to look at the preacher's content. We need to look at the preacher's posture. And we need to look at the preacher's aim. If we keep these things in view, and you measure the, me and the elders here and anyone or wherever the Lord leads you by these things, we can be assured that the Lord will preserve and protect His church because He'll have people who are not building a platform for themselves, but building a platform for Christ. So let's return again to verses 1 and 2 and in verse 4 and remind ourselves of the preacher's content. We need to look at his content. What is Paul's content? He says, when I... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, no, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And then in verse 4, he says, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So Paul goes right to the jugular. He goes right to the point. He says, if, if you're going to measure preachers, you're going to get to the heart of what a preacher is, you got to look at his content. you got to look at my content. I am only as faithful as the content in which I'm preaching. If my content doesn't point you to Jesus, then don't listen to me, essentially Paul is saying. So he focuses in on this testimony of God here in verse one. Now, it's interesting when you dive into this text a little bit and you get into the Greek here, the word testimony is a fine word for the word used there, but there's actually a better word that most commentators find to be more helpful in the current context. This word can also mean mystery. So I put that in place there. I did come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And the reason why that's important is because in Paul's day, the idea of mystery was such a huge deal for the Greek and Roman world um, that he was doing ministry in. Mystery, for them, impacted all of what ancient wisdom was about, and particularly within that Greco-Roman wisdom and rhetoric. And so we've been talking about all this the last few weeks, you know? And so it, if one claimed to have, for them, one claimed to have wisdom, it's usually because they were claiming to have some context or some access to secret knowledge some secret access, some mystery. A lot of this was the impact of Gnosticism within the Greco-Roman world. And so this special wisdom would give them access to this secret testimony or secret mystery not known to others. So I think the word mystery here fits better within the context of what we're going to unpack here, and you'll see why here in just, just a moment. This mystery better fits the context. Why? Because it, it, it will be pushed out deeper next week, uh, Ben will be getting into this next week as he preaches for us um, in chapter 2, 6, and following. Um, so I'm not going to try to rob him of his responsibilities there. But the main thing here is this. If you think about the word mystery here, you've got to recognize the context of where Paul is in the Corinthian church. And if you go back to Acts chapter 18, where we see him come into, coming to, into, um, into Corinth, where did he come from? He came from Athens. And in, verse, in chapter 17 in Athens, he was debating the, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers and all of the people that were there regarding their deities. And then when Paul then finds that there's this altar among all the other altars to the unknown God, what, what does Paul do? He takes that mystery, this one mysterious thing that they don't know, and he comes in and he, and he, puts, he puts information, he loads it with truth. And he says to them, he takes this unknown God and he plugs the God of the Bible into the God that they don't know. And he says, this God is the mystery that you've been looking for. 
And so Paul does the exact same thing here as he's kind of opening his words and trying to deal with this issue of a fascination of wisdom right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because he says, I didn't come to you proclaiming, complaining to you the mystery with lofty speech or lofty wisdom. He says, no, 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 no. I aimed at only on one game is that the mystery that you are wanting is the knowledge of Jesus Christ crucified. That's what he goes into here in chapter 2. He says, no, I didn't come to you proclaiming this in any of those ways. No, I know, I know nothing. And I love the way that this kind of plays off of one another here, that the substance of all true mystery, from the biblical perspective, is Jesus. And Jesus Christ crucified, who's at the center of all reality. He's at the center of all that is mystery in the world. It is the very heart of God who revealed himself to us, that great counsel they took together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to call out people from sin and death and save them. And Jesus is the one who reveals that. He is the word made flesh. He is the one God reveals himself to the whole world here. So he uses this word, know nothing except Christ crucified. And I think that's really interesting when you pair it back to the idea of mystery of God. What is he saying? He's saying Paul is exposing the futility of earthly wisdom to know anything really, but particularly anything about God without God himself revealing it to us. And he's saying, no, I know nothing except Christ crucified. And so really, really important here. His content as he's preaching is not how he preaches. It's not his infinite amount of wisdom about what he preaches. But there's this historical reality of Christ who came, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a death that was really unjust for him, but was just for us. And then we get to live in light of the fact that he overcame death through the resurrection. This is a historic reality. And he says, all of your desires to to know the mystery of reality are revealed in the son, Jesus. He makes no aim. And he says, look, you want leaders like that, Corinthian church. You don't need leaders who have great rhetorical skill. You don't need leaders who have great wisdom and, 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 can, and can dive into all these things. Yes, these, we need to be sharp and we need to think well and think deeply about things. That is to be certain. But what he's saying is those things, those things are not primary. The faithful preacher will keep Christ and him crucified at the center of all things. And I think if we continue down this idea, it's not that just what the, what the message is of the preacher but how he preaches that message. Again, let's just dive into the idea. I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, Paul's not interested in proving his message, really. Isn't that interesting? He's not interested in that. By the, he's not proving his message by the tools of worldly philosophy. No, his tools are very, very different. He is comfortable standing assured on the one true foundation, Christ crucified alone. That's why we sing on the solid rock we stand. We don't, we send in the testimony, our testimony as a church and the testimony of Paul needs only Jesus and the historical reality of who he is and what he has accomplished. The God, man incarnate who lived a perfect life, died the death we deserve and gave us life through the resurrection that we could not have garnered on our own. See, for Paul, the gospel message wasn't one that needed a lot of highfalutin talk. It stood on its own merit. 
That's why he says in verse 4, I didn't come to you with plausible words. Plausible words are merely human pontifications. We all like to sound smart, yeah? Um, maybe some of us don't care about that, but I, you know, I find that in my world. Like, you know, we just want to sound smart. God breaks, though, through human tradition, and he reveals himself over and above the mere theory of religion and actually sows the corpus of it in his son Jesus. He's not interested in our brilliant understanding, but beholding what he has actually revealed in his son Jesus. That's the heart of all Christian religion, to behold Christ. Not plausible words. Yes, deep theological reflection. Yes, dive into the things the Scripture reveals, and we witness to it here. But we do so, and that's when he goes into the second part of it. I didn't come to you in plausible words, but I came to you by, to demonstrate in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, or of the Spirit and of power. I think it's better rendered the power of the Spirit. So when we think about this first point of the preacher's message, we look at his message or his his content, we need to remind ourselves about what it means for us to look at faithful preachers in our day. Is this content standing on the scriptures to reveal the purpose and work of God? More narrowly, does his faithful exposition of the work of, uh, word of God week in and week out, is that the normative way in which a pastor preaches and pastors to you? Or when you, if you're not here, a member of our church, and you go to look somewhere one day, is that his pattern of ministry? And of course, that doesn't mean, by the way, and I just want to make sure we say this, just because someone preaches expository sermons doesn't make them a faithful preacher. Just because he goes line by line through a text does not make him a faithful preacher. They can, we can miss all kinds of things in that. No, what a faithful preacher is is someone who's concerned to relay the faith once delivered through faithful exposition. Amen. That's a very different thing. Mere raw biblicism is not necessarily, can be, but not necessarily faithful preaching. That's why we engage with things like the creeds and the confessions. You know why? Not because they themselves are inerrant like the Bible is, but because they help us set, uh, set ourselves in pattern with what the historical church has confessed throughout the centuries. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We don't read the Bible as individuals. You're not, you're not allowed to read the Bible on your own and come up with your own pontifications about the Bible divorced from the church. This church, the church in the future, or the church of the past. We read the scriptures together with the church, and that's why the creeds and confessions matter. They may differ on secondary issues in some of those confessions, but they do point us to this, the faith once delivered. So that's what I mean when we talk about a preacher who's faithful. It's not someone who's just up here who's the expert on the Bible. Friends, I am not an expert on the Bible. I work hard to try to understand it, yes. And I get with other preachers and pastors, and we sit down, me and Jim, every week, get together with Joe Stegall at Providence, who's preaching through 1 Corinthians. And we know that we do this. Why? Not because we're weak or we can't do it by ourselves, but because we think there's wisdom in us walking together in this. Now, we do it this way. Other churches may not. That's fine. But if we preachers, if, if, a, if a preacher's expositions are always novel, you know, new, let me just say, beware. Test a preacher's words. Did they stand in the, in the tradition of the faith once delivered to us? He's always got a new idea because he's the guy who is responsible and he's the expert on the Bible. No, no, no. Measure his words. Be thoughtful about what he says. 
make his word stand within the tradition of the entire church. Again, not that the tradition itself is errant, inerrant, but, but, let's, but let's find out how the church has thought about these things. Because by the way, friends, we're not the first ones to open the Bible. <laughs> and sometimes people approach the Bible today as if somehow or another we're the first ones who've ever discovered what this is. Or that we're the first ones who've ever talked about a particular issue. That's just not true. It's just not true. So we must look at the preacher's content. We also need to look at his posture. Look at the preacher's posture. Look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Paul reminds the church that God works through the weak. Thank you. Thank you for that. What a comforting thing that is for someone like myself who often just wonders if I am good enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm astute enough, if I'm available enough. Paul reminds the church that God works through the weak, and he emphatically says, I was with you in weakness. He wasn't afraid to reveal his weakness, reveal his fear, reveal his trembling. Some, be- some believe that these things that were fearful of were maybe attacks against Paul because he tend to have a sickly appearance or perhaps a not a very um, you know, uh, commanding presence. But what is more likely here in the context is that many question his sufficiency for the text because he was unimpressive or that he kind of was lived in relative poverty most of the time because he was a tent maker and he was refusing to take any money from the first the church at Corinth because they were immature. He was vulnerable to persecution. So if a man's always got someone persecuting him, he's probably not a good guy to follow. I mean, there was all these ideas about whether or not Paul was qualified to um, this. He refused to, to engage crowds with a silver tongue, is another example. He was just basic. He just laid out the basic truths. I love that. And so when you think about his weakness, I think about Charles Hodge's statement on this point in his commentary. Paul, he says, refuses to rely on his own self-confidence, rely on his strength, rely on his self-relying. Paul had to work to do that which was above his powers. When Paul comes, he's not, he, he's not coming there because he's necessarily attack on him. He's coming there and just saying, look, you know, the Lord is the one who qualifies, not me. I, I, I don't qualify myself for ministry. I, I have a friend of mine who has this little limerick, he says. He says, Mondays are me qualifying myself for ministry. So he, takes, he does like a lot of self-care, which I think is wonderful. But I think that's a really bad theology. I don't qualify myself for ministry. Christ qualifies those for ministry. And it's dangerous when we get into those kinds of ideas. And you think about his fear. Again, Hodge notes that fear here refers to that sense of anxiety that Paul had. It, would arise, it arose out of his lack of, I don't know, a lack of, of, of security in his own self-sufficiency. The preacher should never feel comfort or comfortable in his own sufficiency. When we talk among our elders about preaching, you know, inevitably, you know, most, I think just about all, we're like, ha, ah, preaching intimidates me. I don't know if I'm good enough for it. And I can assure you I'm not. But we, at the end of the day, the preacher should never feel comfortable, and I think that is one of the things we look for. Is one who's just not, Cocky enough to think he's got everything the church needs. 
right? No, there is, he relies entirely on the sufficiency of Christ first and then the sufficiency of the Scripture second. He rests in what Christ has accomplished first and he rests in the sufficiency of Scripture as a truth for his life. That's the man who's preaching. Even if he butchers it, the church will grow and the church will be well fed if he's standing before the Scriptures and he's standing before his God in Christ. And his trembling, David Garland says it this way, it's, it's the attitude of an obedient slave, he says. So Paul's engaging in his call with a sense of awe, if you will, for his master in heaven. He's not interested in puffing himself up. He's not interested in building himself a platform. He can't, I, oh man, I, I just, not because I want to be judgmental, but I just, it, it concerns me when I see pastors and preachers who constantly get on the interwebs, right? And they had these little short vignettes and you need to come to church this weekend because I've got a special word for you this week. God gave me a special word for you this week. Well, yeah, he did. He gave you the Bible, but he didn't give you a special word. Of course he did, right? We're going to show you how to renew your marriage. I was like, man, please calm down, right? Calm down. You are not all that in a bag of tricks, man. Come on. Seriously, like, let's pull it back down here. And I love Paul's idea. And so this is one of those things for me that this is, I'm always looking around. And when we, when we get enamored with, you know, the, the latest and greatest preacher on whatever circuit we tend to listen to, and I always want, I want to think back to what Paul's example is here. I want preachers like this, and I want to surround myself with men in this church who do this. I want, I want men not because they come in here with great skill and giftedness. No, that's not what qualifies a man. Does he love his wife and his kids? Does he, does he love the church? Does he love the word of God? Does he stand humbly and, his, and find his identity only in Christ? That's why I encourage, you know, again, not just for me to preach all the time, because it's good for the church to hear others, and for other men to stand insufficient before the cross of Christ themselves. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you, the danger for a guy like myself is when, you know, when I preach as much as I do is that you can, and I find this when I talk about other preachers with other preachers in town, it can become, we can start subtly believing our own press. We're not the only ones who can do it. I mean, we're the only ones who can do it. We're the only ones who can really take care of this, and that's just not true. God, may, um, may that never take root of my heart or the men that lead this church or even the, those who are closest to me in other churches. I pray for that often for them. So we look at the preacher's message, his, his substance. We look at his posture, and we lastly look at the preacher's aim. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You will know the heart of a preacher if you can discern what his ultimate aim is. The key way we see if a preacher is faithful is to look at his goals. So many preachers talk about Jesus. They give lip service to good doctrine, but the proof is in the pudding. Paul says his aim is clear. His aim is it is the same aim all preachers must have as their aim. And his aim is, number one, not to have people rest their faith in the wisdom of men. 
In other words, he's not interested in gaining an audience who sits at his feet as if somehow or another he just has all this wisdom about the Bible. That's a dangerous thing. And we love it. American evangelicalism loves the next guy who has the new word, the novel word. It's a dangerous thing, though. I'm looking for guys who are saying the same things that preachers have been saying for hundreds of years. That's why when I was listening to preaching coming up, I, you know, I, I listened to lots of the more notable preachers, but I found myself a few years ago just start listening for like the small church, like, dude, the small church guys, the guys that no one's ever going to know about. Are they going to be listening to their sermons? People that, are, that might just bore people to sleep, I don't know. But these guys are faithfully exposing the word. And I, listened, I try to listen for those guys. Why? Because at the end of the day, we want to be the kind of people, we want, we want the kind of preachers, the preacher's aim is for what? To build up the body's faith, not in his wisdom, not in his expertise. He will encourage them to follow his example. I mean, Paul will encourage us to follow his example later on as we study through our first Corinthians. But, that, but he's not here saying that you need to just be like me. He's saying, no, I am a man who's coming to you and I want you to see Jesus. I want you to rest in him, not in me, not in my abilities. Again, go back to verses 10 through 17 in chapter 1. He's saying you put all of your identity in whether you're of Paul or whether you're of Paulus or whether you're of Peter. And he says, you've got it all wrong. The faithful preacher and Paul wants his audience to see that which is bigger than himself. That which has shaped him himself. Is he being shaped by the message? That's not what we see oftentimes in American evangelicalism. People are not drawn to Christ. They're not drawn into the family of God. They're drawn to an enterprise. They're drawn to a particular set of skills and wisdom and insight by a leader or group of leaders. And look, we can, we can name all the big names. You've seen them. If you've paid any attention, you've heard me talk about them. But friends, these personalities, they hover around even our little tribe of the reformed sphere too, okay? They, they're out there. You know, Paul says, I don't want your faith to rest in men's wisdom. And he's including himself in that men's wisdom. No, I want your faith to rest in the power of God. Just like he said in his preaching, his preaching wasn't plausible words, but with the power of God. Like, what, what does he mean by that? Not, not fantastical, revivalistic preaching, but a kind of preaching that is so committed and so, so thunderously about Jesus that it itself awakens the sinner to life. The power of God is not demonstrated in, in, in all these external evidences, but it's, 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 it's evidenced in the fact that people awaken to Christ. And the church is worshiping and praising Christ. And so he says, the hearers, he wants his hearers' faith to rest in the power of God. He aims, his aim is that their faith would rest not in his superior communication or rhetoric, but their faith would rest on the clear and unswerving power of God revealed in the preaching of Christ crucified. Do you want to know if the power of preaching is faithful? I mean, if the preaching is, is powerful? Here's how you know if it's powerful. The power of God becomes the means of everything in the story of redemption. So let's just walk through real briefly what the, what the revelation of Scripture says. The power of God is revealed as He created the world and brought order out of chaos. 
The power of God is revealed when He floods the earth in judgment. The power of God is revealed when He creates covenant with a rebellious and idolatrous people promising to save them as He did with Abraham. The power of God is revealed when He places a baby in the womb of a woman named Sarah who otherwise had passed her ability to have children. The power of God restrains pagan rulers from their godless agendas. The power of God establishes and destroys the kingdoms of men. The power of God that sends his own son to dwell among men and he puts it through the, through the Virgin Mary to live a perfectly righteous life that is acceptable to God. The power of God that, that atones the sins of Abraham's children and all of his covenant children to follow him. That would include us, by the way, Galatians chapter 3. All right, just in case you were wondering. It's the power of God to raise Christ from the dead, and by virtue, we are the elect will be risen, will, will raise with him. It's the power of God that imparts faith and repentance as the gifts to his people. It's the power of God that holds the earth together until God's purposes are complete. It's the power of God that returns and establishes his kingdom, forever kingdom, and puts the powers of death to death. Friends, it's the power of God that thrusts sin and death and Satan into a godless eternity when Jesus returns. And establishes his forever home for us. Our faith rests in the testimony, the mystery of God to do all the things that we've just read. All the things that the Bible, and way more than I've just read, reveals to us this morning. So I can think of no other better way than to move from this point than to just go prepare ourselves for the table. And we come to the table this morning pondering, glorifying, glorying in the power of God alone. See, I don't want you to see me. I want you to see Christ. So now we're going to come to the table and join together at this table, resting in the power of Christ for weary sinners. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we come to your table. Thank you for your word, so clear, so concise, so direct, so powerful. And may we prepare ourselves now for the table as we, as we prepare for this table, God, you prepare our hearts for it. Those of us who believe and have trusted Christ will take great joy in it. Those who, of us here this morning that need to be renewed in the truth of your word and truth of the gospel, God, may you be, may this table help impart that to us this morning. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.